Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Daisy is Careering. I'm Daisy Buchanan. I'm an author, a broadcaster, and this podcast is inspired by my brand new novel, Careering. It's the story about the complicated relationship between ambition and anxiety and what to do when you think your job just might be the love of your life, but it's never going to love you back. Every episode, I'm going to be talking to a special guest about their own relationship with what they do for a living, how they've navigated the emotional highs and lows of their career, and how we can find a place for ourselves in a world where there is relentless outside pressure to succeed. How can we work on our own terms, and can we make work work for us? In this episode, I'm talking to the brilliant Kat Brown, journalist, broadcaster and campaigner. Kat's words always resonate with me and she writes and speaks so insightfully about ADHD, depression, infertility and more. Kat is the editor of No One Talks About This Stuff, a book in which 15 writers will be sharing their experience of infertility, childlessness, baby loss and almost motherhood. Listeners can pledge to support this book with 10% off pledges if you use the code DAISY10 at Unbound for up to a week after this episode is broadcast. I'll share this code on social media and include a link in the show notes. Kat and I talk about the way work feels like a competition, sometimes literally, and the way the traditional office setup doesn't really take account of the full spectrum of human energy and emotion. We explore our mental health, the times when it's become scarily difficult to manage, and how we've both done dream jobs that have turned into living nightmares. But we laugh a lot. Firstly, Kat Brown. What did you want to be when you were growing up? My first memory of that is of being 10 and deciding that I wanted to be an astronaut. Uh, Not through any interest in space whatsoever, but purely on the basis that all the other girls in my class wanted to be a princess or something similar. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm going to stand out from the crowd and say that I want to be an astronaut. So it was basically a total lie through dint of wanting to show off and be special. And I think that has basically described my... Raison d'etre ever since. And how how long did you nurture this ambition? How long did being an astronaut last for? That purely lasted until the end of the class, <laughs> um, at which point my real secret desire to become a marine biologist kicked in because I had been obsessed with sharks ever since I saw Jaws at the slightly precocious age of seven um, with Anna from my class at a previous school. And after watching Jaws, I became completely obsessed with sharks in the way that small children can randomly fixate on things. And I read every single book that I could get out of the library. I drew extremely subpar illustrations of sharks with sort of like Crayola bits of like red pen sort of coming out of their mouths and everything and um, <laughs> and basically not doing anything to sort of preserve sharks at all. But just sort of encouraging the thought of them being like horrible killers and that sort of thing. Um, And then alongside that, I was also really into vintage trains. So as you can see, like one of the cooler seven-year-olds that uh, have ever been. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I would have appreciated or respected this at the age of seven, at the age of almost 37. I'm like, yes, that sounds pretty cool (laughs) to me. I think in terms of real careers, if you like, in heavily inverted commas, It just didn't even occur to me that they were an option because, I mean, without wanting to sound wildly stereotypical of anybody that writes for a living, books literally were my world as a child um, because I was incredibly easily bored and I read very, very fast. So basically, if I could just plug myself into a book for a while, then that was just like leaving either suburban London or or the countryside or wherever I happen to be, but usually somewhere, um, to me, quite boring and uninteresting. Sorry, everybody I lived with. Um, And just sort of enter some kind of incredible, transportative place where 
all the people were fascinating and only spoke in perfect sentences and were always, you know, funny and clever and interesting. But the idea of being an author or being a writer or or a journalist or anything like that, I was just like, no, these are gods. They're just born, surely. They sort of come down from writerly Mount Olympus and just for their short time on our planet, make all our lives better. But I, I just didn't even enter my mind that that was a career. So what was your very first writing job? Can you remember the first time you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm a writer and I'm in print and there it is. I was incredibly lucky to be able to do a postgrad in magazine journalism at Cardiff. And this guy came to speak to our class and said, if anybody wants to you know, write some stuff for me, then please come and see me at the end of the class. And he basically ran a fairly luxurious, like, Cardiff lads mag. And I was just like, I have no expertise in this, but I want to write and I want some money for doing so. And I I went up and spoke to him afterwards and then emailed him and followed him up. And he gave me a property column in which I'd go around Cardiff looking at the sort of luxurious Batman dens and then obviously go back to my little two-bedroom flat uh, in the arse end of nowhere. Um, And I asked him at some point later, like, oh, why did you give me this job? And he said, completely matter-of-factly, you were the only one who asked. And I was asked something similar the other day by a, a lovely magazine student who asked if I would do an interview with her for her coursework. And on the call, she was like, oh, why did you agree to do this call? And I was like, to be honest, because you asked. If I were inundated with people, then that might be a different matter. But if somebody asks and they're reasonably polite and sound like a human being, then, I mean, as as we as we know as freelancers particularly, that opens an awful lot of doors. And I really enjoyed that property column, as insane as it was. That's such a brilliant thing to do, to step into your first writing job as a, an actual columnist. I mean, you know, that's the career dream. But also, it reminds me of when I was a student, I wasn't paid for this. Um, no, I wasn't paid in money. I was sort of paid in Ferrero Rocher. One of my first jobs was to interview Tim Westwood, uh, oh. dog, uh, at the um, York Uni VIP hip hop night, Lovedo. I was on the mailing list and got the call out. And I was like, well, everyone is going to want to interview Tim Westwood because he's famous and he's on Radio 1. And they're not going to give this to a little first year who doesn't know her ass from her elbow. But no one else wanted to do it. So... Um, off I went. Um, no money changed hands, but at Lovedo, where we got free VIP entry um, from the club promoter, every conceivable surface was stacked with Ferrero Rocher because that was the most luxurious chocolate anyone could think of and they wanted to make it a VIP experience. I mean, this has answered the question, obviously, that I had in my head since you mentioned being paid in Ferrero Rocher. And as soon as you mentioned Tim Westwood, part of me was really hoping that this was actually going to be a description of a bomber jacket that he was wearing that you were subsequently given. Um, Because if anybody's (laughs) going to dress like a human Ferrero Rocher, it's going to be Tim Westwood. (laughs) You've also just given me so many flashbacks to university in sixth form journalism, of which I did a lot, like just endlessly. But that came back to bite me in the arse like years later when I was um, I was working in the digital section at the Times. And this lovely chap came up and he was he was starting in the law section. And we were all like, oh, hello, hello. Lovely to meet you and everything. And he looked at me and with, with a sort of really funny look. And he was like, I know you. And I instantly had like, oh, God, how, how, what have I done? Oh, how awful. Was I drunk? And um, he was like, no, oh, I was at Durham and uh, you reviewed my band. Oh, my God, Daisy. When I say that my blood ran cold and fled from my body, let's just have a little flashback to university music journalist aspirant Kat, um, who basically, yeah, I, I read all of the reviews in G2 avidly and uh, and in the NME and everywhere else and obviously aspired to be a sort of pithy, funny music journalist. Uh, listeners, by the way, Daisy's eyebrows are somewhere in space right now and her mouth is just making an O of pure terror. She knows what this means. And yes, I basically... I went back and looked at this interview because I was so horrified. Uh, this actually really lovely... God, I'm going to sound like I'm damning them with faint praise. But this, you know, really jolly uh, female-fronted band called The Penny Sweets 
obviously very twee and whimsical and lovely. And um, and I don't think I was too rude about them, but that was probably almost worse. Um, so, yeah, as soon as James said that, I was just I was just like, no, my university music journalism career should just have been left up north to die um, in lieu of my actual music journalism career, which I have to say wasn't much better. But I did review Adele in 2006 uh, and say she was really good and would probably go places. So at least my taste was absolutely on point. Oh, cat! my toes haven't so much curled as retracted, um, not because of any lack of faith I have in your skills and abilities as a music journalist, because... I have just remembered um, covering the university Battle of the Bands and I can't remember what I wrote, but I'm sure I thought I was being very clever and very cool and very sneery because it was the fashion at the time to be very sneery. So sneery. And not many people, understandably, could pull it off, which was why they were the ones writing in national newspapers. I also think something else leading to my downfall as a student music journalist um, was that I had grown up almost exclusively on a diet of A.A. Gill in the, all areas of the Sunday Times. My parents had always taken, I understand as the, as the term, the Times and the Sunday <laughs> Times. And so every Saturday and Sunday, my uh, you know intense boredom would basically just sort of transfer itself to reading all of the supplements. And, you know, A.A. Gill's a bloody genius. And uh, yeah, I will just freely admit to having spent quite a large amount of time trying to you know, become like a small suburban ginger version of him. And you will be shocked to hear it did not come off, not even slightly. Although I was also briefly a food and drink journalist for a time. I basically tried to criticise absolutely everything under the sun and eventually just sort of ended up going, do you know what, I will quite happily critique things, but I think my default setting is much more from a place of honest general Labrador enthusiasm rather than you know, sneering. We, we shouldn't have been allowed. We were, you know, little kids with no experience of the world <laughs> and no good opinions. And I'm sure that the A.A. Gill was rubbing off and I'm sure that the, you know, what you were doing was really, really good and, you know, probably sort of thoughtful and thorough and generous. I think I just wanted to write jokes and that seemed to me like the in a strange way, not the easiest and most sensible way, but the only way into doing that I completely agree I think I knew from the off that I was never going to be like a great news journalist partly because I'm about as objective as a toadstool and also because (laughs) the people that always drew me back to the magazines that I loved to newspapers and later on to websites and blogs were always people that had a really really clear voice and was somebody that I was just interested in getting their take on the world even if it you know was literally quite about a toaster or something like that. And Laura Barton in The Guardian was very, very much one of them. And I basically existed on a diet of her journalism all the way through university. And when I started to think slash panic about what I was going to do with my life, (laughs) what a lovely question for somebody that's barely 20 years old. Um, (laughs) I I just thought of her endlessly and was just... I wanted to entertain people. I think that was it. Not necessarily in a Vera Lynn way. I had a very sensible, I had a very clear sense that I was never going to, you know, be able to single-handedly entertain the world. But just in my, I wanted to find somewhere that would just let me, as you say, write jokes and and cheer people along and also just infuse wildly about things because I loved and love things very, very de- deeply and being able to sort of tell people about them and, and hopefully get them to sort of like try them out as well um, would just be absolutely amazing. And I do think, thank goodness, that several years of, of writing have very much changed my course of writing from please think exactly what I think about this band or book or film or TV show, or whatever, and very much like, actually, no, go and, go and make up your mind for yourself because otherwise uh, that's me setting myself out to be a cult leader rather than a writer. Do you- think over time you have found a little more kind of peace and distance from that really like lovely intense I think we're probably both fairly similar in our early 20s in that sort of you know big as you say sort of Labrador forces of this sort of intense and 
ambition that perhaps requires a little bit of thought and direction um, and just, you know, all enthusiasm, you know, going anywhere and everywhere? Or do you think it the sort of the distance and perspective and objectivity, is that something that comes and goes depending on what day it is? I think if I was an entirely different person, my enthusiasms, talents, skills, whatever, could have been directed into one place really successfully. Um, And partly because of that, I spent so much of my early 20s trying to find a mentor who would do that for me or not do that for me. I would obviously do the work, but who could do that directing, Um, partly because I just had no idea how to stay employed. I got my first job, like proper job in, in journalism in 2005 and was made redundant from a second job the next year. And that basically started my sort of Indiana giant cannonball downhill experience of work uh, because I just kept getting made redundant. Newspapers would close. um, The people that hired me would all get fired. And so I obviously would, you know, get caught up in in that or directions were sort of changed. But every single time that I thought, this is it, I'm going to claw into this amazing place and learn my trade and learn how to be well, not learn how to be useful, but sort of really hopefully stick around enough that I can become better and make an impact. And then what felt like about two minutes later, um, I'd be out the door again and having 900 degrees of panic attack about what the hell I was going to do next. And I remember, I think on redundancy number two, which was from a, a a wonderful daily called the London paper, which I absolutely adored and was learning so much from um, and just sort of starting to feel like I was just about finding my feet and sort of making a little hermit crab career for myself. Um, But then obviously that got shut down because Murdoch's focus was very much on paywalls at the Times and briefly at the Sun. And um, and so we were all let go. And I went I went to the Peckham Job Centre to sign on, and which was an experience and a half because the job that they found for me to apply to was diplomatic editor of the Daily Telegraph. And <laughs> I was like, oh, OK, well, um, as somebody who's until now been the online production editor of a daily newspaper website, and writing an Agony Aunt column and music and TV and film reviews, I'm not entirely sure how my experience is going to transfer to basically the entirety of the wider world. And I'm not sure how many cool Desperate Housewives jokes I'm able to go get into that either. Um, I, did get, I did at least look at the job description and then I think I went for a big long walk around Burgess Park staring at the ground and just going, oh, oh God, this is it. This is the end of this career and instead of thinking about what I could do next I just remember feeling as though I was just circling a plug hole which to be honest I'd been feeling since I started my career anyway because when you are beginning and not super confident and being paid three buttons a week if that and drinking a lot because obviously you need an outlet for stress and you have the metabolism of a 24-year-old. Oh, and also it turns out you've got lots of undiagnosed mental health problems, uh, which obviously aren't being treated except by your own body weight in wine. Um, yeah, it's not surprising that I was just sort of feeling like the Bugs Bunny panic gif, just sort of giant eyes all the time staring into headlights. I'd love to go back to this idea of mentoring, uh, or being mentored rather, and the myth of the mentor. I've read that so many times in terms of advice we are offered, unsolicited advice. Get a mentor, get a really good mentor who's sort of objective um, and isn't your boss, but is a person who really cares about your career and understands and wants you to do well and has exactly the experience that you want to have but it's 10 to 15 years ahead of you I've had loads of mentors and no mentors I've had lots of people who have been kind and supportive and helpful and useful and done things they didn't have to do but at the same time I've been waiting for that magic fairy god person to sort of descend and help and even now I feel it even now I'm like I want someone to just you know lead me and sort of present me with opportunities and excitement and you know a true clear path absolutely just trying to unlock the key of how to 
get a journalism career. I, I remember when I was when I was studying journalism, I was very aware of the fact that I was in a class with a lot of extraordinarily talented um, and very kind and, and competitive people. And I was just like, oh, God, sink or swim, sink or swim. I'm not very good at swimming. Oh, God, awful. Um, but just trying to look all the alumni, um, particularly, well, the ones who were sort of working in areas where I would, in a dream world, love to work, and just sort of staring at the little, ooh, where I work now, and just going, how? How did you get there? How did you do it? Where is the, I don't know, the sort of Nintendo walkthrough guide that's going to tell me <laughs> where to turn left and where to turn right? And not necessarily how to talk to people, but just how to get it. And so this is why whenever um, students now or or anybody really sort of gets in touch and goes, oh, I'd love to pick your brain about X, Y, or Z, I keep wishing that I could present the sort of lovely atmosphere and aura of just like a really wonderful, dignified matron who's very cool and lying on a chaise long with a long pipe and everything and just going, darling, it's this easy. I'll tell you what to do. Instead of which, the Bugs Bunny eyes come back and I go, do you know what? Realistically, a lot of this is really fucking hard. It's really shit and it's really stressful. A lot of the people that I speak to now are so capable and calm and also crucially not you know, filled with undiagnosed mental health problems. And if they if they are experiencing similar, then often they're already sorted out. Because I honestly think, hopefully my experience of work and, and everything would have been completely different if I just had a bit more understanding about how my brain worked. But I mean, my God, I did get some like insane and quite funny stories along the way. So I don't regret anything. I just feel quite sorry for the poor burnt out little husk that sort of drank her way from one job to the oh, other. This is absolutely not set up for anyone with any feelings or emotions at all. They are horrible, horrible, frightening places. And I've just felt, you know, drained and exhausted and paranoid and sensitive and trapped every day I've ever had to go into an office, with the odd exception where, <laughs> you know, it's been fine if I felt that I'm not there forever and I can leave. Yeah, absolutely. I think that has definitely been my key since uh, going freelance, except obviously, you know, you go freelance and then a pandemic comes along. What are you going to do? Uh, I think definitely having an escape strategy is very, very important. Um, but also really good loos are crucial to surviving in an office environment, by which I mean there need to be unisex shut off independent loos because that's the only place a that you can have a poop and b that you can go and have a really freaking good cry without somebody or or just without having to stop when somebody comes in and remain frozen until they leave again i should also say that i over my my career i've had so much fun and so many wonderful times and I don't remotely mean to paint, paint a picture that I sort of turned up to work and then immediately went to the loo and had a nervous breakdown for eight hours but I think one of the things was that being quite an anxious person and also not realizing what anxiety or depression or ADHD or any of these things were and being surrounded by people who just all seemed to be really chilled and getting on with everything and also having very, very high standards, which is, you know, great. But um, but when your way of getting these high standards sort of met and your work done is basically to whip yourself into a state of anxiety, basically by telling yourself how awful you are every minute, then, um, yeah, that's, that's really difficult. Um, but I was very, very lucky that whilst I didn't necessarily have mentors, I had really good friends um and even if some of them I didn't know for very long or who weren't friends for very long they all were incredibly important to me at different stages of work of navigating life as a human and you know just trying to figure out how the world works because obviously every generation experiences all of these things completely differently and my experience was so so dramatically different to that of my parents, for example, um, because I've been made redundant four or five times. My maths is very bad, probably at least four. And whereas my father, who was a solicitor, very sensibly, I really wish I'd inherited those genes, um, he worked for the same firm for his entire career. 
the firm changed ownership, it changed name loads of times, but he was there from the minute that he left university, did his articles until he retired. And uh, I mean, that, uh, the mind boggles because yes, I did spend a lot of time trying to find a staff job, junior writer entry. And I thought really that I had found the place I would work until I died in one of my first jobs. But this is not an industry for that sort of longevity, unless you are extremely fortunate. And for example, uh, get a graduate traineeship onto one of the papers and just, you know, manage to stay there being brilliant. That's such a good point, though, that we just don't really have a model for the way we work now. I think all the time about how, you know, we're like we're women in the workplace and we are still relatively new to capitalism. Mm. My mum has, you know, done bits and pieces and odd jobs and lots of volunteering and she, she went to university Um but she didn't really ever work full time once she started having children. And also she'd say that, you know, that was her choice and she felt really, really lucky. I didn't really know anyone growing up who were doing a job because they wanted to explore their potential and see what they could do and work in an industry where they were excited and passionate. And I think like you, I loved reading. I I wanted to be Janie Lloyd Fox in Riders and Rivals, although obviously Janie does go a bit sour and um, a bit Janie towards the end of those, but early early years Janie um, and all the fabulous women in um, in Jackie Collins. I wasn't sure. I want a bit of me wanted to be lucky Santagelo, but um, she was sort of like a fabulous doer of deals and business, business, business and billions of dollars. And I didn't really know. But I was just like, I'll just um, go in with great hair and a really good suit. And um, then I'll, I'll magically, I'll do a takeover, whatever that means. You've just reminded me, though, is that because everybody in my wider family had very sensible jobs. And I, mean, I would genuinely mean sensible. I don't mean that in the sort of slightly snarky way that we might phrase that now. Um and so when I went for work experience at the Basingstoke Gazette when I was about 17 or 18, I had no idea how to dress to turn up. Um, and oh, to my absolute horror, remembering this, uh, because I was going to do work experience um, in with the arts team, which was led by this amazing American man called Eric, who very inconsiderately then almost immediately moved to Berlin, which meant I couldn't go and chat him up for any work. Um, but I turned up on my first day with my nose ring uh, of T-shirt and flares and was then sent to court to go and uh, listen to a coroner's hearing. Uh, needless to say, the next day I turned up in an absolutely hideous, shapeless Dorothy Perkins beige suit and remained that way, even whilst interviewing death metal bands over the telephone, which I adored um, for the next two weeks. Um, but yeah, I have not made that mistake again. And to be honest, probably nobody is making that mistake now because obviously the internet's got thrumpty million guides of what to do and, and how to dress. In a... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Sort of not too de Brett sort of way. That's a really interesting topic though, because when I decided I really wanted to do this podcast and talk to people about their relationship with work, um, and actually Emma Gavin mentioned it earlier, we're talking about dressing, and it seems a bit reductive and a bit straight. What should women wear in the workplace? But it is really, 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 really hard. And it's definitely something where I've struggled my idea of who I want to be and who I want to present myself as versus what I can achieve. And we were talking about how there's times when 
making an impression is really important and when we want to feel equal to the job we're doing and that's more often than not than when we have absolutely no money and we always feel a bit shabby and frumpy all the way oh my god until I was trying to going everywhere in converse or quite often flip-flops with my plastic new look shoes in my bag and those really like just uncomfy things and walking around in the office in heels and more often than not no one in the office care I also remember working in a call centre um, in my gap year and I'd got this jumper I loved and it was like mini the mink striped only pink and red and it was off the shoulder and I think it wasn't quite I hadn't, when I bought it, maybe I'd not tried it on. I didn't realise quite how off the shoulder it was. But I had these, like, big pink plastic hoop earrings that I wore with it. And I think it was £7, and I didn't have much money, and I was supposed to be saving up to go travelling. But it was very much like a jeans and trainers office. It wasn't a suit office. And then a supervisor came over and said that it was too revealing, and I was showing too much skin, and I wasn't to wear it again. And I just remember, feel like, if I could have inverted myself, I would have done. I was pure pure shame it never sort of occurred to me that a shoulder might be not a good thing to show especially because we were all talking on the phone and no one could see us um and you know when you just feel it's like you oh I should have known what the rules were yes and that I thing of I should have known that thing that nobody told me and that I yeah, had no yeah. way of finding out that expectation to be psychic which again is just the most hateful thing ever. And I think you're absolutely spot on about the dress code mystery as well, because there is something odd, isn't it? In that uh, a bloke can turn up to a newspaper office in the same suit that he's worn for the last nine years every day and maybe sporadically taken to the dry cleaners if it's in threat of getting a bit crispy and put on the same crumpled shirt and then he'll leave his jacket over his chair or something and come back in the next day. But if a woman was to do that and just to wear the same skirt suit, then at some point, certainly in the 90s, early 2000s, she'd probably have been teased for looking like an air hostess or something else because a woman in a suit means something else entirely. And I have to say the most comforting if not necessarily comfortable work environments that I've ever been in was just after I graduated when I was temping in a meatpacking factory, would you believe? And um, and then shortly before starting my journalism course, when I was temping as a dinner lady, because they just gave you a uniform and then you just didn't have to think about it at all. Because as long as you had your hairnet and your hat and whatever else, and in the the case of the dinner lady, a sense of extreme power, because my job was to be in charge of allocating pudding, which made me very, very popular, um, then everything was absolutely fine. But that sort of worry about how you're presenting yourself, what everybody else is wearing. Also, this myth of that I see replicated absolutely everywhere in popular culture and, and growing up as well, even in the 90s, 2000s, that we were all supposed to wear designer clothes. I mean, partly as somebody who is six foot one and has size nine feet, like finding clothes that fit was just a full-time job in itself. And And, and I just always knew, actually, in any office that I was in, that I was always looking a bit off. And I don't mean that in the turning up to a newspaper to go to court wearing giant flares a la 2002 or something. But but just that feeling that everybody else was just so much smaller and blonder and straighter and sleeker and that they were all the right kind of person. And I think the clothes thing for me was just as much as I loved fashion and loved dressing up and really, really enjoyed the clothes that I wore... But always just having that feeling that I just wasn't, I don't know, the right sort of person. And and I think also that, you know, that very well probably was true. I wasn't sort of the right sort of person, but I was the person that was there. And I really wish that I'd thought about that more because, you know, it wasn't going to be a total accident that, you know, I'd ended up working somewhere. But I always, at the back of my mind, had that, you know, terrible feeling of, being found out or something like that and and as as a result just wanting to work 95 times harder which probably didn't necessarily make me any more efficient I really want to talk to you about the book that you are working on with Unbound and the stories that these different people are sharing 
and the power in bringing something that's so very, very personal to life and something that's so collaborative too and what that working experience has been like so far. It, again, this is just something that I didn't even know could exist sort of 10, 11 years ago, um, which was when I started writing about mental health, just very gently. Like I wrote a little piece about depression for Huffington Post and then in the way of these things, it sort of snowballed and I wrote something for Grazia and then I wrote something for the Saturday Times. And I remember, because I think yeah. that was before I knew you, and being so moved by those pieces and seeing the Huffington Post one. And I think I followed you on Twitter. And um, and actually, I re- our mutual friend, John Underwood, God rest his soul. I remember when I first met him and him saying... Um, so not in like an obnoxious braggy way because you know John was always entirely lovely but in a you know stick with me kid I know cool people is like, <laughs> yes. I know Cat Brown <laughs> and I was very impressed <laughs> and just being so moved by the quality of the writing I'm so grateful for that thank you Daisy with writing about anything very personal bearing in mind that I am theoretically an arts journalist and have no business talking about health or any of this sort of stuff it's been because I because I've spent so so much of my life feeling like I was defective or you know I was just doing something wrong just simply because when I needed it there weren't pieces or forums or communities um, where I could sort of go, oh, okay, it's not that my, you know, it's not that I'm fundamentally an awful person. It's that my brain works in a different way or that, you know, if I go and have some therapy or or take some, uh, try this medication or, you know, go and try X, Y or Z or just change the way that I work, which I'm, we'll come on to in a minute, then things could be so much dramatically better. Um, so the book that I'm working on at the moment um is with an editor at Unbound called Fiona Lensfeld, who was a books editor at the Times for years, and which is where I first crossed paths with her. I never, ever thought we'd work together. She was far too fabulous and, and very like put together, which makes her sound like an awful bitch, but it wasn't. It was just me being terrified by anybody who wasn't a great flapping, you know, anxious person like me. But this book, which we've sort of given the working title of No One Talks About This Stuff, is with that exact idea in mind of collecting lots of different writers talking about all sorts of different areas around not motherhood, but sort of all the sort of different aura around it. So choosing whether to have a family, perhaps changing your mind about having a family, you know, all the rotten things that can go wrong en route to that, which because I've never been pregnant, um, I've never experienced, but miscarriage and stillbirth and that awful... uh, menu of just trauma and grief that again as I found out when I went through IVF and my own experience with infertility whilst also holding down a full-time job which is a fruity combination let me tell you you know you're just supposed to get on with it and just sort of somehow compartmentalize that you have experienced something really exquisitely difficult um, uh, something which I think has been coined rather wonderfully as disenfranchised grief, which is a grief that society doesn't recognise. And again, is the sort of grief of going to cry in that one helpful, prized single loo with the really, really strong soundproofed walls before you go and, you know, put yourself back together, put some concealer on your face and go back to your desk. Um, but it was really, really important to me that we cover lots and lots of different experiences and backgrounds. And I don't mean in a tokenistic way, but I mean, because when I gave up drinking a couple of years ago, I found that it was super, super easy to find help and to find support, um, which just is not the case with pretty much anything that goes wrong in the daily course of being a woman. You're just supposed to get on with it and maybe set up a fake Instagram account or something like that. Um, But I also found that when I was going to support meetings, um, a really helpful phrase was to listen to the similarities and not the differences. And so similarly with this book, I want to have the widest and largest number of writers that we can. It started at 15 and hopefully we're going to push for the budget for for 20 um, so that people have that because... Whilst I was going through infertility and, you know, picking up my book list to read on the way home from work as I was prepping for all sorts of, you know, fairly invasive procedures, all of the books that I found were either single person experience memoirs that always, always, always ended with a baby at the end, 
I mean, even if it wasn't a book about a baby, you'd be amazed where a baby rocks up just everywhere. Need a happy ending, <laughs> pop a baby in there. And um, or they were fact books, which was great if you had a scientific brain, which I categorically do not. Uh, encyclopedic memory for David Beckham's various hairstyles. I can help with, however, but not science. Um, so I want this book to hopefully be that sort of one stop support group whilst we're trying to persuade people that the infrastructure needs to be there. And until there is that infrastructure, we'll do that by basically filling up bookshelves by by stealth and not with like sad woman staring out to a lake at sunset images on the front. Just something that is relevant and unapologetic and basically looking at stigma and going, you know what, mate, fuck off, you're drunk. And yeah, shutting all that down. I'm so struck by the idea of disenfranchised grief because that's not something I've heard of before. But I'm really winded by that. That there are there's a tiny, 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 and there are maybe like three official sadnesses we're allowed to have, and you know, like statutory sadnesses. Like you can have you know this much time off, and you will just let you get on with it, and you know you can get it together. And even then, we don't know quite how to talk about it and we're bad at language but at least we know we should be giving a person space and we should be acknowledging it in some way even if by ignoring it but all of the other sadnesses just know you just like rattle on keep going that's the important thing not thinking about it is the important thing I think that actually really really informs um why I went with Unbound for this because it's a crowdfunding publisher and that is because so many places just try to change what you're feeling into something else or to diminish it or to not acknowledge it or to go okay but is there a baby at the end um is you know okay but where's the where's the lesson where's the good takeaway where's the positive motivational instagram quote but um if you could um just see your way clear to actually getting pregnant the book deal's yours yes uh feedback here in bright red caps all the way through the piece and that sort of thing um I think David Kessler, who's this guy that runs this website, grief.com, and thank God there is a grief.com, because again, you never know there's anything like that until you go looking for it. Um, he he said on a one of the many podcasts about grief that I've listened to over the last few years, just basically trying to find something that I could chime with. He said that the worst grief imaginable is the one that you are going through at the moment. And that, again, is why I wanted this book to be crowdfunded, because everybody knows that feeling and also that feeling of going, oh, but X, Y and Z didn't happen. And, you know, I didn't fall out of a window and break all my bones. So realistically, what I've gone through is really not important at all. And I vividly remember feeling that at at work or when I thought that I'd committed like the world's biggest crime. And I remember vividly years ago in one of my very early days on a film magazine getting home and finding that I'd accidentally sat on my dictaphone um, and recorded over my interview with somebody with like BBC Seven. And I just remember unleashing this absolutely primal scream of panic. And my poor housemates sort of ran in, were like, oh my God, have you been burgled? Are you dead? What's going on? And I was just like, I've recorded over the interview. Because at that time, that was the worst thing that I could imagine. Because I was like, I wasn't even the junior writer. I was a junior trainee writer. I was basically like the lowest thing in the building that wasn't actually a cockroach. Um, and we had pest control for that sort of thing. But but that's the thing about about these incredibly strong feelings around work, around infertility, around any of these things, about being a person, because they're all like, am I doing it right? And if I'm not doing it right, how can I do better? And then when you just feel completely lost, it's just like, yes, but you know, worse things happen. But that's not comforting. And that's also pushing away from actually what's happening now, which can at that time feel really, really tough, whether it's, you know, somebody being really bitchy to you at work, or, you know, being made redundant, or just somebody not liking a piece of work that you've done. They're all really crushing. I am an avid, avid reader of addiction memoirs, and stories of people who've struggled with, you know, substance abuse, be it, you know, controlled or what's the other one? wild (laughs) but I've really really been very aware that I have a complicated relationship with food and alcohol and shopping and money and work and I am very capable of rotating all of those addictions so no one thing makes anyone concerned 
No one thing is going to leave me in the gutter, but every single one is something I have used and abused rather than sitting and thinking about things and acknowledging that I'm unhappy and that I have a problem. And work, well, work especially, it's something we get rewarded for being addicted to it. And as you say, it's that, how much more can I bring? And I think I'm going to say that people who are socialised as women maybe have this tendency, especially although it's certainly not exclusive to us, that we think we're the problem. We think we can fix it. We don't dare look around and say, well, if that person didn't do that thing, we can think that, but then think, but if only I fix the problem in myself, only I double down and I fit into the Karen Millen dress and everything is going to be okay. And when I went self-employed, I was really stuck. I had lots of work and it's a bit like, um, I mean, I've, you know, my more like, promiscuous times, I've just been so glad and grateful and relieved to be wanted. I've been like, of course, <laughs> off, off we go. And I had a real slutty work period that I'm still recovering from where I do anything anyone asks me for money. And we are enthralled to capitalism and we're told that's the good way to be. And you're like, well, great, because if you do this, if you say yes all the time, you get more of the stuff that you maybe don't want to do in the first place or the thing that's making you a little bit anxious and unhappy and tense and stressed. And, you know, it's the cure and the cause. Mm. I mean, one thing that I am really pleased to hear about with not wanting to sound um, 900 years old, but with the next generation and particularly Gen Z and even people younger than that is that it does seem from anecdotal evidence that friends have told me that they just aren't putting up with that shit, which is wonderful. And I think it is incredibly difficult. And one of the reasons that I think I'm not going to go back into a workplace full time is because because I don't drink alcohol anymore. And because I definitely use that and shopping and oh my goodness, food, absolutely. And I was treated for binge eating disorder for a couple of years. Um, but basically I can't cope with the the drams of the workplace anymore and sometimes also the presenteeism of a workplace and the good thing about working from home and the forced changes over the last couple of years is that certainly seemed to have changed people's ideas but just I think that that would be certainly very challenging for me um, because I need to have time to get away from my desk. And for example, I, you know, one of the reasons that I, I got a dog a year or two ago was because partly I wanted to have a reward for my first year of sobriety. Um, sadly, sobriety from alcohol, not from Ben and Jerry's ice cream and dairy milk and all that sort of stuff. But also because I, I wanted something that would literally force me outside every day and to make sure that I wasn't just going from desk to tube to desk back again and then you know falling asleep at five o'clock in the afternoon because I was just exhausted from everything um but it is really interesting sort of seeing how people are really re-examining what work means to them and also you know what that sort of financial support means I mean I think something that really sticks in my head that I really didn't even think about for a good 10 years is that you know, it, well, it was barely sort of 40, 45 years ago that women stopped requiring their husband's permission and signature to get a mortgage. And yet when I was in my thrusting girls school that I went to very briefly for about a year when I was seven, we were just told that we could do anything under the sun. Yeah, sure. Go and make a hovercraft, go and, you know, do X, Y or Z. And then obviously the reality when I was coming up um, in the workplace was just that absolutely wasn't the case because mm. men still ruled the roost and in a very, very specific way. And on my first day of work at a magazine where I had won a scholarship over 700 other people, my first job was to go and sit in the editor's house and wait whilst he had his double glazing fitted. But he wouldn't let me just sit in his sitting room because he'd got a new TV and it was too swanky. So I had to sit in his bedroom watching Buffy on his laptop next to uh, his pile of sex manuals on his um, bedside table. Oh, and there wasn't any food in the house as well because both he and his partner were very high up in media. And so obviously they never cooked. So I think after about three hours, I ate a granola bar because I was just like, I hope he won't mind too much. 
Um, but yeah, fingers crossed that sort of shit doesn't happen now because... And this was a job you won as a prize. Oh yeah, I was being paid, I think I was being paid £13,000 for the for the privilege of having won this prize in 2005. And I mean, I was overjoyed to be there, but I think that was the problem. I was overjoyed to be there. Mm. Whereas now, somebody winning that scholarship, A, that sort of pay and, and that sort of attitude and there being not really any sort of career or clear path of what to do and essentially being a glorified work experience person which obviously I took as my craven you know less than due uh, which is also I think just my attitude to me generally but nobody would take that now and I, I see people sharing you know job adverts that don't specify a salary and are quite rightly shaming them yeah. And that isn't cancelling. That's just pointing out that something is unacceptable. I would quickly like to talk to you about um, drinking and work, if that's okay, because I have a really complicated relationship with it. And I should say, hand on my heart, I don't think I have been in any workplaces where I felt that I was, you know, vulnerable. I don't think I've had any experiences on kind of you know nights out and things where I've, I've n- never sort of been like oh the boss is getting a bit handsy I better get the bus home whatever and none of that I've and I've also had lots of really joyous bonding experiences yes. with colleagues where I've been absolutely hammered but I know it's it's bittersweet it's something that I think collectively we're all falling out of love with I think that I think lots of people don't want to go out and get hammered at Vodka Revolution on a Friday night with the people they work with (laughs) anymore. Well, I think in my limited and mostly pandemic has blocked me from getting any more experience in this. But I think going out sober um, feels very much like going out drunk and that basically everything good will happen before 10 o'clock and then just go home which obviously is something that I never adhered to in my 20s. And like you were saying, I had so many brilliant times with work colleagues, men and women, and never touch wood. Um, And luckily, perhaps due to where I was working, or maybe I was just too tall, who knows? Maybe they thought they couldn't reach me or something. Um, I had, you know, really, really great times, but I also crucially had the metabolism of a 24-year-old. And certainly the older I got, or maybe that's not true, maybe not older, but certainly by the time that I was... 32 33 I was very very selective about drinking uh, on work events and I think certainly by the time I got to glamour um I I remember having maybe one drink one time at a pub and and then maybe two glasses of champagne at the glamour awards one year um but then also you know the cortisol and adrenaline of being surrounded by celebrities that a you need to look after and make sure they're having an amazing time and also b you massively don't want to embarrass yourself in front of um obviously sort of kept you a bit sharper there but one of the reasons why this year i've, I've completely changed things up and i'm working from home and i'm really making a concerted effort to put in things like physio and outdoor exercise and hobbies into my daytime day Mm. is because I need to appreciate that those are also really really important to me as somebody who is you know really annoyingly got to have a hip replacement next year but also going through infertility and understanding what that means sort of longer term and and also sort of trying to do lots of healing around how my how my brain works and which all sounds hugely, hugely indulgent, but also, yes, do you know what? Fuck it, it is, and I'm going to indulge myself. It doesn't myself. sound indulgent at all. I think it sounds like bloody hard work, and I salute and cheers you with my water. Thank you. Oh, well done, that's very very good. I've just had a herbal tea. But, but yeah, because I think certainly once I got to 30, having basically been working as many jobs as I could humanly do, because if, if my day job wasn't ticking all of the boxes, then I would go and try some freelancing somewhere else or or this or that or the other. And then also, obviously, socialising was a full-time job in itself. And I just remember getting to 30 as that sort of, well, that made-up landmark that it is. Um, mm-hmm. Because also, you know, if you haven't had a 30 under 30, then, my God, you're basically useless and dead, aren't you? Um, which, again, is nonsense in itself. I think certainly the thing that... I am thinking now as I approach 40 is going, look, you, 
you, you cannot and you should not work at a frenetic runaway train pace for the rest of your life because hopefully work should be something A, that you enjoy, B, that is purposeful and hopefully can be useful to other people in the same way of some of the pieces that I've written about infertility and ADHD and that sort of thing. I mean, all the time I get people just going, I literally had no idea until you, I don't know, I saw your story about eating disorders or that sort of thing. Then I went to my GP and now I'm on course for some therapy and that's brilliant. And I sort of feel a little bit like in in lemmings when you were just trying to sort of stop all the lemmings from go off the cliff and direct them to sort of safety. I'm like, do you know what? Maybe that is going to be my job. Not in a sort of psychiatrist or organised enough way because I'm I'm not an organised enough person for that. But in all the different areas of experience that I have, I mean, I, I don't have any examples of how to behave with those. So all I can do is hopefully do what I feel best with, which is to be hopefully honest and hopefully not too oversharing. And, and also, crucially, I don't want to make a career out of trauma or anything like that. So I have turned down a lot more stuff than I have written or spoken about. But to hopefully then just find something that can be meaningful for me. And I have to say the thing that I'm most excited about this year is actually a voluntary thing, which is nothing to do with work, um, which is that uh, me and my dog Sybil are going to do pets as therapy and we're going to go to hospitals and let people pat Sybil because she's very patable. But also something that I saw about years ago, which is shy children who are having difficult learning to read. We go into schools and they read to Sybil. And again, reading has been my escape and my cure and everything to me for years. I mean, I wish one day I'd be able to actually write a damn book, um, but my God, it's just so hard. So I think if I spend my years just enjoying the fruits of your labours and the labours of all my other favourite writers, then that will be wonderful too. Well, firstly, I have no doubt that you'll write that book when you're ready and I'm so excited to read it and I can wait I've got lots of time secondly I'm so thrilled and delighted that you made a lemmings reference (laughs) and thirdly I have one more question for you and I think you might have answered the question already what does the expression dream job mean to you I mean Barbie's dream house basically like somehow miraculously becoming Barbie and carrying a, a briefcase like why a briefcase I had a briefcase for about two months at school and was understandably and very realistically bullied for it but I think I think the dream do- job sadly is a myth um, because I know that whenever I've worked somewhere really objectively fabulous be it a broadsheet newspaper or a nationally acclaimed magazine or or uh, you know somewhere that I've really loved like nobody really gives a shit they're like, oh, would you have written anything that I'd have read? And I'd be like, I don't know. I'm not inside your brain or your internet history, thank God. But also that they, they might just be like, oh, I don't read that. And I'm like, but it's the paper of record. What can, I, what, what, what can I do to impress you people? And I think that's the point is the dream job cannot be about impressing other people as much as you will feel like it should do. Because we always, you know, we, we're not humans unless we're thinking about what other people think to some extent. I think the dream job is the one where, fingers crossed, you don't go to bed on Sunday night feeling like tomorrow you're going to be made to walk the plank into shark-infested custard or otherwise, and where you don't go to sleep each night thinking, why is my heart feeling like it's about to break through my chest? Um, And where you can, you know, just go to work or go to your desk downstairs or just do something where work is a part of your life and you are not a part of work because, yes, we're all sort of cogs in the machine and all that sort of stuff. But also, wouldn't it be nice if work were a cog in our machine? And if I'd had a user manual for my brain years ago, then perhaps I would have done things differently. But as it is, I'm here now and I've learnt as much as I possibly have done at the age of 39. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what I learn over the next 20 years to make me feel like I am a part of the world and not just on the verge of a nervous breakdown like every two minutes. Thank you so much for listening to Daisy is Careering. The podcast is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast, with special thanks to Sphere. My novel Careering is published by Sphere and out now. It's available in hardback from all online bookshops, with a special signed edition available from Waterstones. It's also available from Amazon, where you can find the ebook. The audio book is read by Celine Buckins and Joe Hartley. For now, I leave you with this from Matessa Moshfeg. 
I had no big plan to become a curator, no great scheme to work my way up a ladder. I was just trying to pass the time. I thought if I did normal things, I held down a job for example, I could starve off the part of me that hated everything. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 